This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 21, and we're recording on Monday, March 14th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from bookriot.com. We just recorded yesterday, so this is a little weird. <laughs> but it's pie day, so I'm excited about it that. It's pie day. It's I'm going to make a pie. Today. You should make What kind of pie will you make? I have frozen strawberries and blueberries that I picked last spring and summer in my freezer, Ooh. so I'm probably going to make some sort of fruit tarty type thing. I don't know. It's just really a ve- like a vehicle for whipped cream. Obviously. To me, so <laughs> there that is. I approve that plan. I approve this message. Um, So for those of you who are listening for the first time, this is a personalized reading recommendation podcast. So you send us your requests for book recommendations and we answer them on the show. You can send us requests for book recommendations for you or for, uh, you know, a gift that you're giving to someone for your book club or any combination or variation thereof. You can drop your question at the bottom of every post for every episode post on the site, Book Riot dot com slash get booked or you can email them to us at get booked at bookriot.com or you can send them to us on twitter we will um we email them to ourselves when you tweet us your questions and then so that we can include them uh, on the show and we do try to get to every question if we don't answer your question immediately don't fret we will get to it eventually if it is time sensitive we will try to answer it within you know the time frame necessary for you to have your answer uh and i think that is all of our primary info so let's jump right in question one all right. Go, go, gadget. Question. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Thank you. The first question is from Bridget, and it is, let's see. Hi, guys. My mom moved interstate last year, and I miss her. I really wish she hadn't gone. Every time I read things about healing mother-daughter relationships, it helps, so I was wondering if I could have some recommendations on books. I really like the Raven Cycle books by Maggie Stiefvater, everything written by Neil Gaiman or Zadie Smith, the Flying Dutchman series by Brian Jakes, and Unlondon by China Mavel. Boy, that's a good list of books. Um, but before we answer Bridget's question, we have our first sponsor, which is Queuing Jazz Hands Book Riot Live! Yay! Hello, hello, hello. So we had so much fun last year at Book Riot Live 2015 that we're doing it again. So this year's Book Riot Live will be in New York uh, at Metropolitan West, same venue as last year, same bad time, same bad channel. <laughs> same excellent donuts around the corner. <laughs> right, exactly. A slightly different weekend. It's November 12th and 13th this year. And tickets go on sale on March 28th, which is going to be just a couple of days after this show uh, goes live. So you should get right on that. Um, and the thing that you should know about getting early bird tickets is that you will get bonuses. So early birds get a discount off of both the weekend pass or single day passes. There is going to be a free Book Riot Live 2016 water bottle for early bird ticket holders. There's going to be early access to RSVP for special programming and a bunch more extras that we'll announce as we go along. So, yes. Oh, and I guess I should say, if you don't know what Book Riot Live is, where have you been? <laughs> it is a two-day reader convention. Celebrating books and the reading life with uh, the Book Riot community. So we, the staff come out, a lot of our contributors attend, the people that you tweet and Facebook and comment with on the site are there, plus lots of amazing authors and speakers. So again, that's November 12th and 13th. Tickets go on sale March 28th, and you can find out all the details and stay tuned for more at bookriotlive.com. 
Last year was amazing. Please come. We had Margaret Atwood. Oh, that was so good. And, yes, and N.K. Jemison was there, and DJ Older was there, and Lori Hulse Anderson, and Jason Reynolds, and it was just awesome. It and was And this awesome. year is shaping up to be just as great, if not better. So mm-hmm. be there or be square. Indeed. Basically. So, books about moms. Yes. And, okay, my first recommendation for, I forgot her name, Bridget. Okay, my first recommendation for Bridget is Where'd You Go, Bernadette by Maria Semple. And the main character in this book is a woman named Bernadette who used to be an architect, a very, like, revolutionary, um, whatever, boundary-pushing architect who is no longer doing that. She's now kind of a stay-at-home mom. Her husband works for Microsoft, and they live in Seattle. They live in Seattle, and they're very wealthy. Her 15-year-old daughter... B goes to a snooty, snooty private school that Bernadette, where Bernadette really just doesn't fit in with all the other moms. Um, so B gets uh, really great grades on her report card in a semester and is given a reward. Her parents promise to take her somewhere and she wants to go to Antarctica. So the planning begins for this family trip to Antarctica and then Bernadette disappears. She's become, through the course of the book, she's becoming increasingly more and more kind of like agoraphobic and antisocial. And then she just up and disappears um and so the book is written in normal you know book prose but also email messages weird letters um official like police reports and stuff like that so it's not just straight prose it's got a really cool kind of multimedia thing happening and it's all about trying to find where Bernadette went after um disappearing randomly while trying to plan a family trip to Antarctica and it's told from the point of view of the daughter who is 15 um, doesn't have that really like pretentious, precocious narrative thing happening. B is a really great voice. She's a great narrator. Uh, and then you are you go on this awesome adventure to find um, her mom. And her her relationship with her mom is really fantastic. They're they're best friends. Um, so I think that that would be a nice thing to read for when you're missing your mother because Bernadette is literally missing. Uh, and going to find her really puts their relationship into a nice kind of stark relief. Uh, and yeah, it's funny. It's so funny. I don't know. Maria Simple writes for, was it SNL or something? It's Arrested she, Development for sure. Yes, thank yeah. you. She wrote, she writes for Arrested Development or wrote for Arrested Development now, I guess. Um, and she's just, it's just hilarious. It's so, it's a laugh out loud funny. Really great on audio. Though if you do it on audio, you're going to miss the like, cool visual of the email text message multimedia thing happening but it's still really funny so that's where you go Bernadette the like emails from the snooty private school were among my favorite sections they were so funny and the neighbors letters to her about the blackberry bushes (laughs) the book is so good it made me feel so much I when I read that book I think my kids had just been born and I had just gotten into this like going to the park and feeling really weird about how little I had in common with all the other moms, you know? And so this really, like, validated my feelings (laughs) about hating all of that, 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 like, that mommy stuff. Anyway, it's super funny. It's really good. Uh, My first pick for Bridget is Everything, Everything by Nicola Yoon, which is a YA novel. You mentioned a bunch of YA novels, so I was like, oh, good, I have one. Um, And... One of the things I loved about this book when I read it was that it sounds like it's a love story. Uh, all of the sort of plot descriptions um, have, have this, you know, so, okay, I guess I should rewind a little bit. The main character uh, who is narrating the book has one of those diseases where she is allergic to everything. She lives inside her house with just her mom and Carla, who is her nurse slash sort of the housekeeper, and they like, can't go outside. Everything is filtered. People can't really come and visit her without being decontaminated because if she encounters 
basically anything, she could die. Um, and so she's lived in her house her whole life, really very limited existence. I mean, she's happy, but it's a very small existence. And then one day a moving truck it comes next door, there's a new family, and there's a boy. Of course, there's a boy. And he's wearing all black, and he's very interesting, and his name is Ollie, and she comes to sort of meet him. Um, and of course, you know, they're gonna fall in love. Like, that's what's gonna happen. But it, what was cool to me about this book was that Ollie was really sort of a vehicle to redefine the main character's relationship with her mother, who's a brilliant doctor, and who she doesn't see all that often, but their relationship is really the crux of the book. Um, and I thought that was really fascinating and it sort of really slowly evolves over the course of the novel and I really loved it. It's a complicated relationship. It's not funny like where do you go burn dead? It's it's got its ups and its downs, but it's a really well-drawn portrait of how complicated the mother-daughter relationship can be, and I appreciated that a whole lot. So that's Everything Everything by Nicola Yoon. Okay, my second pick is the uh, Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood by Rebecca Wells. And this famously is a movie with, um, ooh, Sandra Bullock. Lord, have mercy. I couldn't even remember that, so you did better than I did. (laughs) Sandra Bullock. I love this book so much. I also like the movie, but the the, the book has, like, a special place in my heart. Um, It's about a woman named Sita Walker who is a playwright. She lives in New York. She's this famous playwright. She writes a play about her family, about her mom, um, that portrays her mother in a really terrible light. And in a New York Times review about the play, or no, she's not a playwright. She's a director, and she's directing this play. Anyway, or did she, no, she wrote it. Details, man. So in the New York Times review of this play that she's directed, her mother gets described as like, a horrible child abuser, said his mother. Um, and so her mom lives way down south, and sees the review, reads the review of this play that her daughter has directed, sees herself called a child abuser, and disowns Sitta in this very, like, dramatic southern woman fashion. I never want to see you again. And Sitta's about to get married, and she doesn't care. She wants nothing to do with her. You know, dramatic, like, hand to the back of the hand to the forehead. Um, kind of thing. <laughs> um, and so Sitta is, like, mortified. She so, feels so bad about all of this. She begs her mother to forgive her, postpones her wedding, doesn't know what to do. And then the Yaya sisterhood, which is her mom and all of her mom's friends, her like older friends that she's grown up with in this small southern town since they were all born, um, since they were, you know, knee-high to fireflies. The the Yaya sisterhood steps in and sends um, Sita a scrapbook of all of their childhood mementos that kind of gives Sita a look at why her mother was the way she was when she was growing up. And so it's a lot about... um, it's actually a lot about sexism, like the stuff that her, the choices her mother made because she was a woman in the South in the 60s and 70s and had to. And, you know, she has a breakdown at one point. Her mother had a mental breakdown at one point because she had four kids in rapid succession with no help because that's what you were expected to do back then. And so she has, she has like a mental break. And that is one of the defining moments of Sid's life. And it's one of the things that she remembers as, as, um, as kind of an episode of abuse and looking at it from this other perspective is just really interesting. So it is all about like Sita, Sita has all of these kind of resentments that she's held on, even though she loves her mother, she has all of these resentments and questions and um, anger about growing up with this dramatic whirlwind of a woman. And then as an adult, I think, and I think this is a common experience for a lot of people, a lot of women with their moms. As an adult, she realizes that her mother was just a human being, and there are like steps taken to heal all of that stuff. So it's really heartwarming, uh, really difficult 
to read. Um, and yeah, I just really love it. I love it so much. And you know, the South, uh, the Southern setting is a thing that I'm obsessed with anyway. So that's Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood by Rebecca Wells. My next pick is Boy Snowbird by Helen Oyeyemi, which I just realized in the same way. So you could say that Everything Everything is a Snow White rewrite in a certain way. And so is Boy Snowbird, much more <laughs> explicitly. So apparently I have a theme. Um, <laughs> it's a beautiful, amazing book. Also very complicated family relationships here. Um, the a main character, well, there's three main characters. So Boy is a young woman who has run away from home and like arrived in this random small town in Massachusetts trying to find sort of a new life um, and escape what she's left behind in New York. And she marries a local guy and becomes stepmother to his beautiful daughter, Snow. And then she has her own child, Bird, and it's becomes clear when Bird is born that there is African-American blood in there in in her husband's past, even though he's been passing as white. Um, and Bird is very dark and Snow is very light. So they send Snow away so that Bird's life will be less complicated for it. And of course, Snow deeply resents this. Um, Bird kind of doesn't understand a lot of things about her childhood. And Boy is dealing with a lot of her own past as well as trying to make a better life, what she thinks is a better life for her daughter. So you have a bunch of different female relationships all intersecting at different angles. And I think Oyami handles it so beautifully. There's a lot of family secrets in this book, especially like towards the very end. You can't even talk about the last chapter because it just Mm -hmm. is like, what? Wait a minute, what? (laughs) (laughs) It's really intense. Um, So it's a book about, you know, as well as being about complicated female relationships, it's also about racism, and poverty and family secrets and figuring out how we exist in the world with other people when those other people maybe shine a light on us that we don't like. It's a really amazing book. And I think it's got like a touch of that, of the magical to it, even though it's a, it's a very grounded story. Um, and the books that Bridget listed make me think that this is a really good match. So yes, that is Boy Snowbird by Helen Oyeyemi. Okay, question two uh, is from, is anonymous, we don't have a name, so, okay, um, let's see. I love this podcast and look forward to listening to it every week. Well, thank you. I'm taking part in a readathon in April, and the theme is Chick Lit. I've got some books already on my list, but I was wondering if you know of any graphic novels that also fall into the Chick Lit category. I don't know if that's even a thing, but I thought I would ask. Um, yeah, you want to go? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll okay. go. Uh, Chiclet, it's it kind of isn't a thing anymore, except that it's, I mean, I remember when I was a baby bookseller in the early 2000s, there was actually Chiclet sections in bookstores, mm. and that's yeah, kind yeah, of I gone away. That. But now we talk about women's fiction, which I think is kind of the same thing, but maybe with a slightly less dismissive handle on it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I like books about ladies, so I have recommendations for this. <laughs> um, my first recommendation for you is Gem and the Holograms Volume 1 Showtime, which is written by Kelly Thompson and illustrated by so- 
Sophie Campbell. And let me tell you, I don't care whether or not you are a Gem in the Holograms cartoon fan, which it was a, a cartoon in the 80s. This graphic novel is so much fun. I've been reading it as it comes out in issues. And volume one is a collection of like, I think the first five or six. And it is fantastic. They rebooted the characters. Um, it's very inclusive. There's all different body types. There's all different personalities. And the colors are so bright. They kept a lot of the sort of flashy neon crazy design wacky makeup stuff from the original cartoon and sort of updated it and it's just great so it's about Jerrica Benton who with her one two three four sisters um <laughs> three sisters uh has a band called Gem and the Holograms um and this their secret is is that their father left them an artificial intelligence that helps Jerrica become turn into Gem who is this like rock star tall willowy amazing you know front woman for the band um and Jerrica is shorter and has terrible stage fright and but is the person writing the songs and really holding the band together she kind of poses as the band's manager as well as being the secret front woman uh, and it's all about their adventures um and it's so lovely it's such a fun read it's really funny i just cannot recommend it highly enough so that's gem and the holograms volume one showtime i also had a difficult time with like what does she mean by chiclet i've never really kind of sat down and tried to define that but the thing that i landed on was like uh realistic contemporary women's stories and I don't know if that's accurate, but that's what I went with. Um, so, question mark. Um, so, my first recommendation for you is Gemma Bovary by Posey Simmons. And this is actually a rec that came from the Book Riot Back channels, because I tossed this question up to the contributors um, asking for their input. And this is a graphic novel retelling of Emma Bovary, uh, you know, Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert. And in this book, Gemma is very similar to Emma. She's bored. She's terrible with money. She cheats on her husband a lot. Um, she's the second wife of Charlie Bovary, who has children, so he's also a stepmother. His ex-wife is still alive, and they don't get along, uh, Gemma and the ex-wife. And so a sudden windfall, and the fact that Gemma really hates where they live, they live in London and she hates it, um, takes the family over to Normandy, so they move to France. And then pretty soon she gets bored living in France because she's just bored, you know, in the same way that Emma Bovary was just bored with everything. Um, so her neighbor who is a baker and kind of an intellectual, becomes sort of obsessed with her um, and does this really, like, stalkery voyeurism sort of stuff. He notices, like, when her jeans don't fit right, when she wears something different. Um, he knows all of her lovers that she takes when uh, her husband isn't looking, all of that sort of stuff. So uh, it's... In the same, it's got the same themes and deals with the same sort of issues as Madame Bovary, adultery and the consequences of that, financial issues and the consequences of that, being disappointed, um, marriage, deception, a little bit with uh, like body image and, and things of that nature, which isn't really a thing that's dealt with a lot in the original story, but is in this new updated version. Um, and yeah, graphic novel. I really enjoy retellings of classics uh, of any variety and in any form so this one was really interesting to me so that's Gemma Bovary and it's spelled with an e b-o-v-e-r-y and of course it'll be in the show notes and that's by Posey Simons nice yeah I think Chiclet I mean the first thing I think of is Bridget Jones's diary because that was yeah, probably yeah. one of the first things I shelved so like I think it's meant to 
be like, I don't know. I don't know how mm. they used to think about it, but I think women's fiction, like books about ladies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you can really, it's just not, it's like any other. Yeah, it could be anything. Like literary fiction. What does that even yeah, mean? What you it can define it however you want to. Exactly. Um, so my second pick is Today is the Last Day of the Rest of Your Life. Written by Uli Lust, translated by Kim Thompson. We read this book group for a totally ladies graphic novel book group that I'm in, and it was amazing. <laughs> I love that that is the thing. It's a love thing. It. It's so good. It's the best. Sorry. <laughs> I actually haven't been to a meeting in months. I'm really lucky that they're not too strict about attendance because it's just like, a, you know, it's hard sometimes to make everything line up, but it's still my favorite thing that I do. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, okay, so today is the last day of the rest of your life is a memoir graphic novel. Uh, so it's a graphic memoir, not a graphic novel, note <laughs> to self. And it's set in the 80s um, when the author Uli Lust was 17 and she is... Um, kind of just like hanging out with the punk crew um, and wants to leave Austria. She lives in Vienna, I think. Um, and she, somebody one day is like, let's hitchhike to Italy. And because she's 17 and is a punk, she's like, sure, why not? Let's just do that. <laughs> so she and her friend start hitchhiking across Italy um, and end up in Sicily along the way. They go through uh, Naples, Verona, and Rome. And as you can imagine, two young women hitchhiking in the 80s comes with all kinds of potentially dangerous and terrible situations. Uh, it's not an idealized version of hitchhiking or of being a young woman out in the world at all. She's very, like, straight up about what happened to them. Um, they got actually very lucky. Like, bad things happened to her for sure, but it could have been so much worse, and she also acknowledges that. Um, and it's a really fascinating look at who you end up being friends with and why you're friends with them, and then also just an awesome road trip memoir. And she's her art is really interesting to me. It's a very muted book. It's like a lot of sort of green tones and browns and then black and white, and it's kind of sketchy. She doesn't do a whole lot of shading, but she does do a lot of detail. So her renderings of where they are on their road trips are amazingly evocative. It's so good. Um, and so, yeah, and, like, the way that she talks about her fellow traveler, Edie, who's this kind of promiscuous, like, whatever, manic pixie person. But you find out, like, it's more than just that. But anyway, she she's really entertaining. And also, you're just kind of like, oh, my God, please stop being an idiot. <laughs> but you're 17, and you're missing half of your brain when you're a teenager, and that's what happens. So <laughs> that's uh, Today is the Last Day of the Rest of Your Life by Uli Lust, translated by Kim Thompson. Okay, my last pick for you is also a rec from the Book Riot Back channels, and it's Lena Finkel's Magic Barrel by Anya Ulanich. I love and this book. I just have to interject right now. So good. Oh, you've read this? Yes, I have. It's really oh, good. good. I'm, I'm putting it on my TBR because of this blurb. Gary uh, Steingart calls the author uh, the David Sedaris of Russian-American cartoonists, <laughs> which is like the most specific like blurb I've ever read in my life. It's pretty accurate. <laughs> Um, so this is a graphic novel about the world of dating as an adult. Lena Finkel, the, char the character, has uh, ended her marriage of 15 years and is going back into the world of dating. And she's got two teenage daughters, and it's online dating. So we're following her as she does the online dating thing. And she gives all of her dates funny nicknames. Uh, the Orphan, the Diamond Psychiatrist, 
Vampire of Bensonhurst. I need to know what that's about. Oh my god, that scene too is like so stressful and <gasps> terrible. You're just like, oh my god, what's happening right now? It's really no, good. yay. So this feels very like chick litty in the most Bridget Jonesy way that I can come up with. You know, like lady goes on horrible dates and is really funny and snarky about it, and I'm super here for that. Um, and Jen likes it, so there you go. Uh, so that's Lena Finkel's Magic Barrel, and it's by Anya Ulinich. We also read that one for my book group, my graphic novel book group, and it was great. Although we had a big fight about it, which was also interesting. I love it. I love it when book group has fights. (laughs) Yes. The biggest fight my book group ever had was over Americana, and it was so good. It was such a meaty, awesome thing. Yeah, it's no good if everybody likes the book, because then you all just sit around for five minutes being like, yeah, it was great, and there's nothing to talk about. All right, let's go get brunch. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, question three is also anonymous. I'm a gay man who is struggling to find compelling literary fiction with gay male characters. I'm more than a bit of a snob when it comes to literature and generally prefer to read classics or very well-written modern fiction and literature. To find gay romance, however, I've generally had to look outside of that. Mostly, I find a lot of romance books with gay men, and in all honesty, I've never liked the romance genre. I've also read some mystery and urban fantasy to find gay characters as well. Some books I have liked are The Song of Achilles and Mary Renault's work, especially The Last of the Wine. I also read A Little Life, and though it destroyed me, I thoroughly reveled in the pain. It's a beautiful novel. Okay, well, I just want to say, for first of all, that I also loved The Song of Achilles. That book is freaking amazing. Seconded. Um, uh, so you go first, Amanda. <clears throat> oh, okay. Um, so I was thinking classics, uh, modern classics, lit fic, that kind of thing. So my first pick is A Single Man by Christopher Isherwood, which is also a movie. I have a theme uh, today, I guess, with, oh, what's his name? Oh, my gosh, I can't believe. Colin Firth. Jeez, Nelson. Uh, a movie <laughs> with Colin Firth, and it's a great movie. Um, so this is a book published in the early 60s that takes place over 24 hours. It, it's a day in the life of a British... English professor who lives outside of LA and his partner has just suddenly died I think in a car crash if I remember correctly and so he's just dealing with living his life without his partner who he desperately desperately loved Um, and it's a very short and spare like Isherwood's writing style is really razor sharp it's very clean there's not a lot of fluff Um, and it's a really kind of heartbreaking book so George George is the main character has all of these ways in which he isn't a typical, um, in which he's an outsider. So he's an Englishman living in the U.S. He's an Englishman living in L.A., which is even more of like a microcosm of, you know, its own little culture. He's an English professor in this like surfery sort of community. He's gay. In mid-century America, the book takes place, I think, in the late 50s or early 60s. Um, And so he has, he spends a lot of his time keeping himself to himself. You know, he's kind of antisocial, but he likes people, but so much about his personality and his life is dangerous or offensive or upsetting or disrupts the lives of everyone around him in some way. So he just keeps internalizing and internalizing and internalizing. And the book is like his internal monologue and it's really, really heartbreaking and introspective and lovely and uh, kind of a modern classic in its own right. I'm weird about the word classic because in my brain, like a thing cannot be a classic if it was published after World War II. And that's so arbitrary and makes no sense whatsoever. But so I'm going to use the term modern classic. So it's a modern classic. That's a single man by Christopher Isherwood. 
My first pick for this is Edinburgh by Alexander Chi, um, who we have, I have talked about before. Um, he is, his new novel, The Queen of the Night, came out recently and is like a big sweeping historical epic. Edinburgh is his first novel and it's a very different book. Um, first of all, significantly shorter. <laughs> it's like 200 something pages. Um, and really sad and dark. Trigger warning for, uh, child molestation. Note to selves. Um, but so it is uh, about uh, a young boy named Fee who is a Korean American teenager, and he's in this boys' choir in Maine. And the director is molesting the boys. It's it's really sad and horrible. Um, and he <clears throat> has to deal with. So you start when he's a kid, and then you move forward in time, and he has a really hard time separating out what has been done to him from his own sexuality, which is really hard to deal with. And he, uh, years later, he's a high school student, and, or teacher, excuse me, he's a high school teacher, and he discovers that the choir director's son is one of his students. And so now he has to deal with, like, all of his memories and what happened to him and what happened to his friends and who he has become because of this thing that, ha this terrible, terrible thing that happened to him. Um, and one of the interesting things that Alexander Chi does for this is he kind of intersperses Korean folktales into the narrative, which helps balance it out, I think, from... I mean, it's a very dark novel, but it's also a very beautiful novel. So that one, I think, is a great uh, book. And it won the... Was it the Whiting Prize as well? And the prize-winning book. Um, and so, yes, that is Edinburgh by Alexander Chi. Okay, my second pick is also modern classic. It's Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. Um, this is about, a, not a boy, whatever, a young man. He's almost, he's in his late 20s, named David, who's living in Paris in the 1950s. And he is trying to work out his identity. So he's engaged to a woman named Hella, who is off abroad trying to figure out if she wants to actually marry him. Um, and while he's in Paris, he's trying to figure out what he wants to do with himself. His father has cut him off financially because you're almost 30. You should know what you want to do with yourself by now. Um, and so he's kind of floundering. He goes to borrow money from a, a local guy. Uh, and in his like kind of shady underground dealings of trying to borrow money, he meets an Italian, I think, bartender named uh, Giovanni and starts an affair with this man. And so he's swinging back and forth between... I have feelings for this man. I am gay, you know, and then also, but I need to get married. I need to marry my fiance and move back to America and have a normal American, you know, white picket fence kind of life because that's what's expected of me. And that's what I actually want. But then I keep going back to Giovanni's room, but I actually want him, but I actually want her, you know, back and forth. And that's what the novel is, is about this struggle of a man in the 1950s. He's in Paris and he has this identity of, um, of I love this man and I love this place and I love everything about living here and the, you know, the, the art and the introspection, but I also am expected to marry this woman, to marry any woman and to have children and to get a job and to do that corporate American thing. And maybe I do really love that, you know? And so it's a big identity struggle. It's a classic, um, in, in every way, I think, modern classic. Again, it was published in like 50, in 55 or 56, I think. So just past my weird arbitrary mark that makes no sense. Um, but anyway, it's and it's James Baldwin. And you can never go wrong with James Baldwin. So that's Giovanni's Room. 
My second pick for this question is The Lacuna by Barbara Kingsolver, which is a book I really loved. Um, And it's a book, sort of modern history of, well, Mexico City and the United States with a gay protagonist, which doesn't happen so often, I don't think. Um, And so the main character, uh, Harrison Shepard, this is all based on a real person's life, I believe. But so the main character, Harrison Shepard, was born in the United States, but grew up in Mexico. And he, so is kind of, and he grew up in a bunch of different places. Um, And so he's kind of rootless and a little bit lost. Um, And he mostly is raised by the housekeepers who send him on errands and have him help out. Um in the kitchen and then one day he is uh, sort of working out and doing little errands here and there and he ends up mixing plaster for Diego Rivera the famous yeah like you do (laughs) (laughs) as one does as one does mixing plaster for Diego Rivera it's just a thing that happens sometimes Um, and so he then sort of becomes drawn into the circle of Rivera and Frida Kahlo who becomes a lifelong friend Um, and there's like Trotsky is a character in this. I mean, he it's sort of like Forrest Gump in that like he's not a, a play a big player, but he's around all of the big players of this time period and it's a really interesting look at like I there were things that I was like, wait, is that a real thing? And then I went and looked it up, and it was. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of interesting art history in particular mixed up in here. Um, of course, this is right before World War II. So there's a lot going on. And he decides at a certain point that he has to go back to America and like start his career and, you know, be a person in the American world. Um, but there's a lot that he's hiding, uh, including his sexuality. And he also, because of his past with the Riveras, then comes under scrutiny for like communist sympathies in the aftermath of World War II and like the early days of the House on American Activities Commission. And so there's a lot of politics in here. There's a lot of geography covered. There's a lot of, you know, just different kinds of moments in American history from the perspective of this man who really struggles to find his own agency and to own his own identity. He's much more comfortable being behind the scenes, helping other people to make their mark. And, you know, you kind of watch him as he tries to figure out what it is that he actually wants to do and if he will ever do that thing. So it's a really moving book. Um, It's kind of dark. It's really lovely. And that is The Lacuna by Barbara Kingsolver. Okay, I want to give you one more recommendation. You mentioned that you don't really like, or you have never liked the romance genre, but that that leads me to think that maybe you just haven't found the right book in the romance genre. And I want to recommend Think of England by K.J. Charles, which is one of my favorite romance novels ever. I love it so much. It takes place in England in the early 1900s, and one of the main characters is a man named Archie. He's a decorated war hero who has lost... Um, part of his hand in uh, a military accident. And it takes place in a um, big house. It's like a big house mystery kind of thing. And when he's in this big house in the English countryside visiting a friend, he meets Daniel, who is from Portugal and is very obviously gay, which in 1904 was like a very brave and strange thing to encounter. He's decadent and he's foreign and he's strange and he's a poet. And so Archie, who is this very like, you know, very proper British soldier automatically dislikes this guy. And then they both discover that um, 
there's a big secret happening in this house and that it might have something to do with Archie's military accident and with a couple, with people he knows dying and, uh, you know, treason and all these big, big, scary things. And so he and Daniel get together to kind of solve this mystery. And as they do that, they fall in love. And it's a really lovely story. Daniel is an Oscar Wilde read-alike. Like, he is such a hilarious and amazing character, and I love him so intensely. And Archie is very sweet and stoic and serious. And so the two of them together are just great. It's just really lovely. I don't know. Like, there's no other way to put it. It's a fu- it's funny. It's well-written. It's, um, I hate saying this, but it's a very, you kind of literary feeling uh, romance. Um, I say that because you seem to like that kind of style. So there you go. I think that there's no real difference between literary fiction and romance novels, but that's that's a whole other rant. Anyway, I urge you to give it a chance because I really enjoyed it. And that's Think of England by K.J. Charles. Okay. All right. Next question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's me. It's me hey, you. It me. More talking. Okay, this is from Ashley. Um, question four. This dreaded book slump has occurred, and this time it's caused by Naomi Novik's Uprooted. I read it after Liberty gushed about it on the All of the Books podcast. I loved this book, even though I loved this book, even though it is most decidedly fancy, fancy, fantasy, and I've never fancied myself a big fantasy reader beyond the usual Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, etc. But this book reminded me of my childhood readings in a wonderfully nostalgic way. It's fantasy, but more like a fairy tale adventure for adults. And the protagonist was a kick-ass woman, which is a rarity in my limited fantasy experience. I need more. Any suggestions for grown-ups that grew up reading the likes of Ella Enchanted, Bridge? to Terabethia, uh, Beauty by Robin McKinley, etc. Uprooted fit this oddball description so perfectly and now everything I pick up pales in comparison. Alright, you go. Girl, I feel you. <laughs> Uprooted is so good. Um, it is hard to match that. But, that's where Sorcerer to the Crown by Zenitro comes in. <laughs> yes! My bingo. Sw- it's the it's the answer to everything. Get booked, bingo. <laughs> it is. It, here it is. Sorcerer to the Crowd. I've gone like two shows without mentioning it. I feel like it's <laughs> fine. Um, so Sorcerer to the Crowd is set in Regency era England. And the main character, Zacharias Wythe, is a freed slave. He was freed by a noble lord who also is was a magician. And he recognized Zacharias's latent magical talent and freed him and adopted him. And now, as a grown-up, Zacharias has inherited his protector slash adopted father's position in the Wizard's Council, which is not what it's called. Uh, Sorcerer Royal. Oh, yeah, he's the Sorcerer Royal of the Unnatural Philosophy. Philosophers. And most of these men cannot actually do magic. They're just like wealthy white dudes who think magic is interesting. Um, but Zacharias can actually do magic. And this means that not only are they jealous of him, but also he's very much sort of in the minority in many ways um, and is therefore sort of they're they're trying to remove him from his position. And they put him in a very frustrating spot politically. And then on top of it, English magic is disappearing. So Zacharias goes off to try to figure out what is happening to English magic and also try to figure out how he's going to deal with these cranky white dudes. And uh, in, in the process, meets a young woman who has, like, crazy magical talent. Uh, Prue, and women are not supposed to do magic because, obviously, Regency-era mm-hmm. England. Women are not supposed to do anything interesting. But she's got a lot of magic, and 
he's he as he meets her at a girls' school where he sees all of these girls doing all of this magic, and he's like, "What is going on? We're doing this all wrong, clearly, and we must figure this out." And then hijinks ensue, and everything is amazing. Like there's a <laughs> lot of different magical traditions that come up, which is really cool. Um, there are dragons, which is great. Uh, very different kinds of dragons from uprooted, which is like a metaphorical dragon, um, but they're real dragons in Sorcerer to the Crown, and it's just a the most fun and like the most interesting setup uh, for a series I've read in a long time. I'm like dying for the next book to come out. When will it come to us? I don't know exactly, but I'm looking forward to it. So that is Sorcerer to the Crown by Zen Cho. Okay, adult fairy tale adventures. Yeah, so here for these. Um, so my first pick for you is The Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland in a Ship of Her Own Making. Yes. Excuse me, by Catherine Valenti. Yes, I love this book so much. I love this whole series. There are four or five at this point, and they're just all so great. So, okay, A Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland in a Ship of Her Own Making, aside from having the best title of any book ever, is a really excellent fairy tale. It's about a 12-year-old girl named September who lives in Omaha in a kind of un... not specifically named time, but it's obviously around, like, World War II. Her father has gone off to war. Her mother has gone off to work. And so she's left pretty much to her own devices. She's bored. She's 12 whatever so one day she is kidnapped by the green wind who comes to her in the form of a guy in a green jacket who wants to take her on an adventure and he is telling her that her help is needed in fairyland there's a new ruler of fairyland a marquess who is mean and cruel and fickle and is also about 12 years old and september needs to go to fairyland and go on this grand series of adventures to um save the day, basically. So she makes friends with a wyvern who is uh, whose father is a library, which is amazing, and a boy who is blue, whose name is Saturday. Um, and she goes on, yeah, just these huge, amazing Alice in Wonderland style kind of adventures in Fairyland in order to save it from the Marquess. There's a big twist at the end about who the Marquess is that I'm not going to give away. But this book has one of my favorite chapters like food chapters of any book ever when she goes into I don't remember exactly what it's called in the book but it's essentially like an autumn forest where where it's always fall like the season of fall and there's this giant feast of autumnal food goods that happens while she's there and it is just so excellent because autumn is categorically the best food season there is no argument. It is objective, <laughs> objective truth. And so the food writing in that like very small portion of that book is just, man, I had to reread it like 18 times. Um, anyway, it's dark, which I appreciate. But I think the thing that separates a fairy tale um, like Ella and Ch- Well, no, even that's got its own darkness. I think the thing that makes fairy tales so interesting to not just children, but also grownups is that as you get older, you can understand more and more the nuances of the darkness in a fairy tale. When you're younger, it's just like, it is scary monsters. But as you get older, you begin to realize that, like, oftentimes it's the people in the fairy tales who are the most, you know, like, frightening. Um, and so it's a dark fairy tale. Bad things happen to good people. There are scary monsters. There are There's cruelty. Um, but it is amazing and so great and appropriate i think for pretty much any middle grade on up is uh, it's an appropriate reading level um for kids and grown-ups and it's got a lot of like inciting jokes in the same way that like pixar movies have inside jokes that only the adults will get this book has that too so that's the girl who circumnavigated fairyland in a ship of her own making by katherine valenti 
All right. So I would like to take this opportunity, Ashley, to introduce you to Kelly Link, who is amazing. (laughs) Her short story collection, Get in Trouble, is the book I'm recommending to you, although really you could read anything she has written and be delighted. Uh, The thing that I love about this short story collection is the range of the stories. And so, for example, there's one called The Summer People that's about a young girl in North in like rural North Carolina um, who helps to not only does she caretake houses for the people who only come up there in the summertime, but she also is the caretaker for the summer people who are fairies, more or less. And she makes a new friend and the new like tells her new friend about these fairies and you know things ensue from there or there's this one story about a it's about a guy who played a vampire in a movie like think you know twilight um and he's a little bit washed up and his career is kind of in a shambles because he is a shambles he's always like getting drunk inappropriately and sleeping with the wrong person and, you know, he's kind of aging and it's like, what am I doing? I've been playing this vampire for forever. How will this ever turn out well? (laughs) Um, But I can, I just cannot stop thinking about that short story. It's so odd. Um, He goes to find his co-star who he's always really been in love with. And she's now part of a documentary crew that searches out paranormal places and so they're in this like florida swamp where there have been sightings and things are just weird um and then there's one where oh this is a good one too there's a girl who gets a life-sized boyfriend doll and but maybe it's haunted um so (laughs) there's all of these sort of interesting different situations that you just wouldn't expect um turned into sort of modern fairy tales it's got a much more modern feel to it than uprooted or for example sorcerer to the crown but that's what makes it so cool like it's hard to i think one of the biggest tricks uh, an author can pull off is to make our daily lives feel magical and kelly link is so good at that. So that is the short story collection Get in Trouble by Kelly Link. Okay, my second pick for you is The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. And this is a book, a very little book about losing your childhood innocence. And I think um, for most people, the moment that you lose your childhood innocence is the moment that you realize that your your parents or whatever grown up exists in your life or whatever authority figure raised you is not always there to protect you, is not always right, is actually super fallible and probably really messed up. And that the world itself is a dangerous place um, that you and you might not always like win. So I think that that moment in every every kid has that moment. I remember mine. I think a lot of people remember theirs in their life. And this is about one boy's moment uh, and wrapped up in like a weird supernatural creepy kind of ghost story fairy tale thing. So it takes place about 40 years ago um, when the main character was a little boy and uh, a stranger commits suicide in a car that's found on his street. And that moment opens up this like portal into another world, very big, dangerous, bad, you know, Neil Gaiman-esque kind of weird otherworldly creatures come into his world to... um, well, mess stuff up, basically. I can't, there's, like, you, you get into the thread of the plot, and it, it's, like, wrapped up in all these spoilers. So uh, comes to mess things up in this little boy's life. The adults are obviously, like, they're oblivious to it in that very Coraline kind of way. This is the thing that Neil Gaiman really nails, P.S. Um, and so they're oblivious, and this boy has to deal with it by himself. And then he finds help uh, in the form of his friend from down the lane. Her name is Letty. She's an 11-year-old girl, but is she really... An 11-year-old girl, or is she actually, like, a millennial old 
being that is wise beyond humanity. <laughs> Who knows? The answer is the latter. So she helps him fight this like big bad evil that's come into his world. And then you revisit him 40 years later when he's come back and is kind of dealing with the consequences of that for Letty. Uh, the consequences that Letty is facing and having helped him deal with this evil that has come into the world because of this guy's suicide. So again, it's dark, uh, like most fairy tales are. Um, I don't know that it I don't know that this would work for a kid. Uh, I know you aren't asking that, but if I feel like I have to qualify that whenever I talk about a fairy tale kind of thing. This is not like a kid's book, even though the protagonist is like 10 years old. Um, but yeah, it's got that magic, um, fantasiacal thing going on. But at the same time, it's dealing with super adult stuff. Um, and it's really frightening. And in the same way that like, the thing that scared me most in The Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland in Ship of Her Making wasn't like the monsters or anything. I mean, it's a kid's book, but like that her parents are so oblivious to what she's doing. And um, and the same thing here, that this little boy is off dealing with this big evil that could destroy the world and him and his parents are, you know, being adults and wrapped up in their own problems and stuff like that. So anyway, it's about that moment when you lose all of your faith in grownups as a kid. And so, yeah, that's The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. All right. Okay. Oh, second sponsor. Okay. Um, Our second sponsor is Start Here, which is a book that we wrote at Book Riot. We actually have two volumes. We are doing a giveaway of the first volume. I will leave a link to the giveaway in the show notes. All you have to do to to get a free copy is to sign up for one of our newsletters, any of our newsletters, doesn't matter. And of course, if you don't like them, you can unsubscribe later. We have several um, newsletters that you can pick from. And Start Here is a a collection of different... um, reading pathway posts that we've written on the site. So the reading pathways are our recommended ways of getting into the work of different authors. So like I wrote one for Charles Dickens. Here's where you should start with Charles Dickens and here's what to read after that and here's what to read after that. Um, we've got uh, Aaron Morgenstern came who wrote The Night Circus, did a chapter for Neil, for Neil Gaiman. We've got chapters for Toni Morrison, um, all sorts of excellent authors. There are 25 total in this volume and there are 25 in the second volume. We're only giving away the first one, digital editions of the first one. Once you sign up for a newsletter, you'll be sent a link to download the book in whatever um, format works for your e-reader or, you know, e-reading device. So just check the show notes for the link to um, enter the giveaway and get your free copy. Or you can just go to bookriot.com and enter in the the little search bar, start here giveaway, and it will come up um, as the first link. So yeah, thank you to us for sponsoring the show. Question five. (laughs) Yay, me. (laughs) All right. This question is from Chelsea. Uh, It says, I'm looking for a recommendation for my dad. I usually get him a book for every holiday. I tend to get him World War II nonfiction or quote unquote interesting facts, history books. This past Christmas, I went out on a limb and decided to buy him the novel The Paris Architect, and he loved it. I'm looking for similar books that I can gift for upcoming holidays. All the Light We Cannot See is already on my list, and a World War II theme is not a must. Ooh, this is like my wheelhouse. I kind of... It's one of my wheelhouses. I have many. Um, (laughs) So, I'm going to go first. Uh, My first pick for your dad is The Cartographer of No Man's Land by P.S. Duffy, which is a World War I novel. But what's different about it than a lot of the World War I novels out there is that it starts in Nova Scotia. I There are not that many books written about the Canadian World War experiences, and I think this one is really interesting. Also because P.S. Duffy, the author, this is her debut novel, but she wrote it in her 60s. So she's sort of coming at it from a completely different angle than, like, you know, the young, like, up-and-coming, 
thing, going to write about my life debut novel. Like, this is a big novel that clearly took, you know, years to research and is coming from a place close to her heart. Um, and I think that's really cool. So... Yes. So it's about Angus, who's in 1916, his brother-in-law goes missing at the front. And he, Angus has been raised as a pacifist, but he decides that he is going to join the war and try to find his brother-in-law, um, which leads instantly to huge fights with his father, um, which is hard for him because he's going off to war and leaving his family behind. But he is going to go and he thinks that he's going to get a position as a cartographer in London and instead is sent directly into the front. Um, at home, his son, who he's left behind, is trying to figure out how to navigate this new world in which, like, some people have gone off to war and some people are mad about it and other people are mad that other people are mad about it. And how does your town change when people are missing, when there's a war going on? All of these big questions. So it goes back and forth between um, the actual trenches of World War One and then this tiny village in Nova Scotia. And it's a really beautifully done portrayal um, with a lot of interesting history and also a lot of interesting personal, or rather, characters. Yes. So that is The Cartographer of No Man's Land by P.S. Duffy. Okay, my first pick for your dad is Sweet Francaise by Irene Nemirovsky. And this is such a fascinating artifact of literature. So it was written during... World War II as it was happening. Irene Nemirovsky was a Jewish woman who was living in Paris. She was arrested in 1942 by the Nazis who were occupying France and deported to Auschwitz where she died. And this novel was stuffed into a suitcase and put in an attic that her daughters found over 60 years later and had published. And the novel itself is about the German occupation of Paris. So she was actually writing it as it was happening and then before she could finish it, she was arrested and killed in a concentration camp. So there's a lot of stuff going on around the novel that I think would make it really fascinating to anyone who is into World War II. But the book itself is not perfect because she never finished it, obviously, but it's um, still really great and heartbreaking. And it's a look at the Parisian, not just the Parisian, the French life as it's interrupted by the German occupation. So it does look at some Parisians who are fleeing the city um, and then it also focuses a lot on peasants, their peasant, peasant life, and how their lives were interrupted as the German soldiers came in and, you know, kicked them out of their homes and put up shop in their farmhouses and stole their livestock and all of this kind of thing. But the thing about this book that stuck with me, I read it a couple of years ago, and the thing that's really stuck with me is that she portrays the German soldiers as basically what they were, which were teenagers, you know, like most of the soldiers who fought in World War II and in a lot of wars in our history are are just like 19-year-old boys. And so she's so, I don't want to say forgiving or maybe empathetic. She humanizes these German soldiers as they come and move into the French, um, into France. And so the relationships that she writes between like the French villagers and the German soldiers are complicated because obviously this is an occupying force you know, in my home, but it's also, you know, this is a 19 year old boy and that's, and this is a 19 year old French girl who thinks that he's cute. And like, how do you navigate something like that when this person is supposed to be like my moral enemy? So it's just a really 
heart, like it's a look at the heart of people who are fighting war and also at people who are being invaded um, from the perspective of someone who was then killed by the people who did the invading um, and who was watching it happen. She wrote this book as it was happening, as she was watching the Germans invade her country. So uh, there's so much about this that's just going to shatter you into a thousand pieces. And it's really well written. Um, and yeah, like I said, a really great artifact of the time. So that's Sweet Francaise by Irene Nemirovsky. And it's translated. Uh, Sandra Smith is the translator. All right. My second pick is a Vietnam War novel. And it's written by Carl Marlantes. It's called Matterhorn. And I loved this book so much. I read it when it came out, and I was just totally blown away by it. Um, and kind of like Amanda was talking about, about how Nemirovsky sees the soldiers as the teenagers that they are, um, Marlantes, he was in the Vietnam War, and uh, he's writing about his experiences, but, you know, in a novelization, but what he really brings home to you in this book, among other things, is that these are just kids. These are kids who end up on the front lines. There's sort of a power structure, but nobody really knows what they're doing. Uh, like, they, they've got some basic training, and then here you go, and... Um, he really, the way that he shows the characters um, and their struggles to become the people they think they're supposed to be and to do this job that is sort of a terrible, horrible job, uh, is really intense. Um, it also, there's a point at which the main character, Wayne O'Malis, goes back home on furlough and tries to talk to the girl that he was in love with before he left. And that conversation is so hard to watch um, because she doesn't really know who he is anymore and he doesn't understand why they can't talk like they used to and it's just really hard um it is a really beautifully detailed novel after i read it i actually did this thing where he talks a lot about the food in an interesting way like this is before mres right like they don't have like astronaut freeze-dried rations in the vietnam war they just had you know canned things and they talk a lot about mixing kool-aid powder into like pasta for example just mm. to get some flavor in there and i was like is that a real thing and Ooh. i i tried it and it was terrible you and tried it i did i made a video <laughs> myself trying to replicate this and then I got an email from the author was like yeah you did it totally wrong (laughs) the best Carl is amazing so (laughs) so anyway this novel it gives you so many details that you maybe would never have thought of Um, I think it's incredibly powerful and compelling the way that Marlantes writes about the soldiers in this uh, company and the young lieutenant who is trying to do his best um, in terrible circumstances. Uh, it's really intense. And so that is Matterhorn by Carl Marlantes. Okay, my second pick for you is Life After Life by Kate Atkinson, which I wrote down here as a little life, and that is wrong. Life After Life by Kate Atkinson. There we go. Um, this is such a trippy, weird book. So it is about a woman named Ursula who's born in 1910, and on the second page she dies. And then on the third page, she's born again. And then like four pages after that, she dies. And then on like the eighth page, she's born, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's about, uh, you know, getting it right, basically, on how the choices and the very tiny little details of her life can send you spiraling on a whole different path. And so she lives and dies dozens, I think, of times over the course of this book, including one and in one life, um, she kills Hitler, I think maybe twice she kills Hitler. Um, And in other lives, she doesn't do that. And she lives out um, in existence during the war, uh, World War II, since she's born in 1910. So she's an adult during that time. And so it's, it's a frustrating reading experience for me, because I don't like repetition in general. And of course, a book that's 300 or 
no, like 500 pages of somebody living and dying and living and dying and living and dying can get a little like, what is happening? But Kate Atkinson does it so well. And the things that change whether or not Ursula dies or how she dies or the choices that she makes are so tiny and minute and strange, uh, especially at the beginning when she's a child who has, you know, obviously very little control over the choices that are the things that are happening in her life are so fascinating. And like, it's just a it's such an interesting exercise in in novel writing to me, like to sit down and have to plot all of these things out um, and to always go back to the very beginning, like what that must have taken from Kate Atkinson, just like the brain power to keep track of all of that is just so impressive. Um, but a, yeah, a weird book about World War II and what the world would have ended up being like if someone had assassinated Hitler, uh, told via a woman who lives and dies over and over and over again. And I really like it. And it's weird. <laughs> so that's Life After Life by Kate Atkinson. Did you read that one? I did. It is really weird and really good. Yeah, I spent the whole, I, first, I spent the first like 100 pages being like, how is she going to pull this premise off? This is right? crazy. And then she <laughs> does. Although I will say I had a lot of trouble with the ending of that book, but we won't get into <laughs> that now. <laughs> I Like time loops are one of my pet peeves. Oh. And the ending is so open to interpretation that immediately yeah. I was like my brain supplied the worst possible interpretation of that ending and I was like no but mm. like anyway either you can take it a couple of different ways anyway that book is a real trip <laughs> and, and very worth reading yes okay last question do we have time what do you think yeah let's do it we can let's do, do it Okay, um, last question. This is from Kara. I'm looking for more great fiction that closely examines marriage and also, if possible, has the element of a complicated, angry female protagonist. I love that exploration in Gone Girl, and I've also read and loved Fates and Furies and Department of Speculation. I'd love to hear more about what you would recommend. I want you to know that before of us, but the both of us put Department of Speculation yes. on our recommendation list before we read your question more carefully. Um, so everyone out there needs to read Department of Speculation, apparently, because we recommend it even when you've already read it. Um, <laughs> so why don't you go first, because I've been talking. Okay, so my first pick for you is a Scandinavian novel um, called How to Be a Good Wife by Emma Chapman. Uh, the couple in question, Marta and Hector, have been married for a very long time. Um, they've raised a son, and now he is off at university, and Marta is struggling with empty nest syndrome. Uh, uh, she has like lived her entire life for her husband and her son. Her her whole life has been organized through her marriage has been organized around this like really strict and terrible book called How to Be a Good Wife that her very domineering mother in law gave her on their wedding day. Um, and it's you know like your entire life should be lived for your husband and your children, women's places in the home, like etc. You know. Tablecloths must always be perfectly centered on the table, like crazy pants, ridiculousness. But she's sort of given her whole life to this marriage, and now her son is gone, and she has decided also to stop taking her medication. And things start to happen. She starts to see things that maybe aren't there. She starts to remember things that she's not sure whether or not they happened. And slowly over the course of the book, you begin to find out things that really make you question who Hector is, who Marta is, what her life has actually been like. It's a really trippy book that is also very straightforward. Like, it's not supernatural at all. It's just, like, very mentally, psychologically challenging because Marta is so unreliable, but you also kind of want to believe her, but you're not sure what to believe. It's really, a, it's a really intense, interesting book. So that is How to Be a Good Wife by Emma Chapman. 
Okay, my first one is I Married You for Happiness by Lily Tuck. This is a super short book. It's only like 200 pages. And it opens with a woman named Nina sitting in, lying in bed next to her husband, Philip, who has died in the night. So she's holding his hand, uh, which is growing cold. He's passed away. And she's too kind of in shock to do anything. Um, she's woken up and he's gone. So she's just lying there holding his hand. And the book is 200 pages of her remembering the big important moments in their marriage before she has to get up and face the world and accept the reality that he's gone. So she's an artist and he was a mathematician. They met in Paris and then they got, you know, got married and had this long marriage together, but it wasn't perfect. Um, she is a woman with secrets and he is a man with secrets, one assumes, even though it's told mostly from her perspective. They had a lot of issues, um, but they also had this great and passionate and complicated and nuanced love for each other. So it's a really heartbreaking kind of book. Um, I, like you're going to, if you've been married ever, you're going to sit there and like put yourself in Nina's position of lying next to your spouse that they passed away, thinking about all the moments um, from your marriage that really define your relationship. Um, and so there's not, a, it's not a plot heavy book. There's not much more to say about it, except that the writing is really beautiful um, and it'll make you think a lot about uh, your own relationships. And uh, Nina is not full of rage, but she's certainly angry in a lot of moments in the book. And especially when she's thinking about the things that drove her to do, to make certain choices uh, in her marriage that I won't go into because spoilers. So that's I Married You for Happiness by Lily Tuck. My next pick, Shadow Tag by Louise Erdrich, does indeed have a very angry female narrator, <laughs> and I love her. So mm -hmm. Irene is a narrator. She's married to Gil. Um, they have kids, and she discovers that Gil has been reading her diary. One day at, like, dinner, he casually mentions the thing that, like, they haven't talked about. The only reason he would know is if he had read her diary. So uh -uh. she starts keeping, yeah, exactly, major <laughs> error, dude, on so many levels. So she starts keeping a fake diary. She continues keeping her real diary, but she locks it up in her safety deposit box. And then she has a fake one that she starts putting things into to see how Gil will react. And this like seems like a crazy thing until you start to find out more about their marriage, which is very complicated. Gil is an artist, and Irene is his muse, and her life has kind of been shaped entirely by the way that his art about her plays out. Um, and it's a really intense book. There's, uh, you know, stuff with the kids, stuff with between them. You are kind of, like, rooting for Irene, but also you're like, this is maybe a bad idea. Um, <laughs> especially some of the things that she decides to write. Because he, like, she just gets crazier and crazier with the things that she writes in there. Uh, and so it's a really intense book. It's a very psychological book. I think it's like the maybe less stabby sort of comp to Gone Girl. <laughs> like yeah. there's less like stabbings for sure. But there's this definitely book, less stabbings. There's, <laughs> there's less stabbings. But this book does come with a trigger warning for domestic violence. Um, it is, and there's alcoholism and bad choices all over the place. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it really, it never settles on the easy answer. There's so many moments where you're like, oh, well, obviously X, and that life isn't like that. There's never an obviously. And uh, I feel like Erdrich, she just channels that really well in this book about the complexities of, like, love that is maybe a bad idea, but you feel it anyway and what that love causes you to do. So that is Shadow Tag by Louise Erdrich. 
Okay, my last pick for you is The Woman Upstairs by Claire Massoud. This is a novel about a woman in her late 30s who's an elementary school teacher. She's single, she has no children, and she has given up all of her dreams of becoming an artist and of having her own family to become the titular woman upstairs, the reliable friend, quiet neighbor, never bothers anyone, um, never makes waves, that sort of thing. Um, so she's not married, but then she meets the parents of one of her students. Her student's name is Riza. Her parents are uh, Skandar and Serena, I think. And they have moved to Massachusetts so that he can teach um, and she to teach at one of the colleges, and she is going to be an artist. Um, so she meets his parents after an incident of bullying in her class. And she becomes obsessed with the family and she gets into their marriage in a lot of really strange ways. She falls in love with the husband and the wife separately and together. Like she loves them as a family. She loves the child. She loves the, the wife and the husband romantically and not and also not romantically. Like She just gets really kind of obsessed with this whole family. Um, and so it's definitely a close examination of marriage but on the outside from someone from the perspective of a character who doesn't have a marriage and who is looking at it from this like what am I missing but also I'm so free kind of perspective which is really interesting and so when she meets them she goes back into being an artist she wants to reignite her life they've given her this drive to kind of do that but then it all falls apart and it's really complicated and this character is so angry like she is full of rage from page one the the book opens with a monologue of how angry she is and it's so satisfying because she has every right to be and it um it really points out the issues with how we treat single women in our society who are over like 30, you know, because then you start to sit, you start to call, you know, they still call them spinsters, that kind of thing. Like, it's just really horrible. The things that we uh, say and do to women who are single and don't have children uh, who are not in their twenties anymore. Um, So anyway, that's the woman upstairs, but Claire Masood, I love this book so intensely. And that's our show. We did it. Yay. So please go rate us on iTunes. Give us a review if you like the show. You can find us on social media. I'm at, um, uh, I am at, I'm Amanda Nelson. Jen is at Jen IRL with two N's. And thank you so much to our sponsors, which were Bookwright Live and the Start Here giveaway. So thank you to us for sponsoring us. And we will see you guys next week. Bye.